stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, Alberta. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Thursday afternoon. Much more to get to uh, over the course of this next hour, but very eager to get to our next guest. And to borrow the cliche, I would say it needs uh, little to no introduction. One of this country's most recognizable uh, names, faces, voices, as it pertains to broadcast journalism in this country, has seen it all in terms of the earth changing, the world changing, and the industry itself. Uh, Peter Mansbridge got his start in the late 60s, so we can say now into his seventh decade as a broadcast journalist. And while he may be retired from the CBC, uh, still a very busy man. He has released his new book, his latest. It's called Off the Record, his memoir. He's going to be participating in an event this evening, wordfest.com. Imagine On Air presents Peter Mansbridge, 7 o'clock tonight, wordfest.com, to discuss the new book, which, as mentioned, is called Off the Record. And Peter Mansbridge joins us on the line here this afternoon. Peter, real honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us here this hey, afternoon. Hey, it's an honor and pleasure to talk with you, Rob. Great to, uh, great to hear from you. Well, you know, look, I mean, you spent uh, many years at the CBC, 30 years, uh, the National, and even though you've retired from that, as I alluded to in the introduction, you still seem like a very busy man. Still pretty busy. You know, the the book is one thing, just came out this week, but I'm also, I still do a couple of documentaries a year for the CBC. I just came back from a couple of weeks in the Arctic where I'm working on a, a new doc on uh, on climate change and Arctic sovereignty. Uh, I do a daily podcast on Sirius XM, and, uh, you know, I give speeches. I was down Niagara-on-the-Lake yesterday giving a speech to uh, to uh, an association. So I, like, I'm, I'm busy, and, but yeah. enjoying it and setting my own pace. Well, that's the thing, and it seems like you've you've enjoyed it all these years. Obviously, you know, there's been ups and downs, as, as um, you know, I'm sure all people can, can attest to and, and relate to. But it's interesting, when you go back to the beginning, and I didn't know this about you. I mean, I mentioned you started your career in, in the late 60s as a very young man. You kind of stumbled into this career. Didn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't planned. Um, yeah, I was working for an airline in northern Manitoba, a little airline called Transair that was a regional carrier, you know, did Manitoba, Saskatchewan, northwestern Ontario, and up into the uh, central Arctic. And uh, so we were based in Churchill. I was a baggage handler. I was 19 years old. You know, I, I, I hadn't finished high school. I was kind of floating around the West looking for work, ended up with Transair, ended up in Churchill, and ended up one day being asked to announce the flight over the PA system, which I did, uh, you know, Transair Flight 106 for Thompson, LaPaul, and Winnipeg, now ready for boarding. And everybody rushed towards the gate, except one guy who came towards me, standing at the microphone, said, hey, you've got a, you know, you've got a good voice. Have you ever thought about broadcasting? I'm the manager of the CBC station here in Churchill, and uh, I can't get anybody to work the late night shift. Would you be interested? And that's how I started. By the way, and I believe you were born in, in the UK, were you not? I was. I was born in England and yeah. raised in uh, Southeast Asia, in Malaysia. Oh, it's now Malaysia, then it was just Malaya. So from the UK to Malaysia to Churchill, Manitoba, how, how did your family end <laughs> yeah. up in Churchill? Uh, it's a long story. You know, I, I went to school in Ottawa, and okay. uh, when I... When I finished my attempt at high school, I joined the Navy. I was in the Navy for almost two years. And then uh, 
and then uh, was kind of floating around the West, literally looking for a job. And, uh, you know, I found this possibility at, uh, at Transair, and it uh, took me up to Churchill, and, and then this happened. You know, and it was, as you said, it was I stumbled into it. It was a total fluke. But as it turned out, it worked out perfectly for me because I loved broadcasting, just like you do, you know, and enjoyed the opportunity to talk with people. Uh, and uh, and the one thing led to another. I started in as a DJ, which I was terrible at, but I loved the idea of broadcasting. So I started a newscast in Churchill. They didn't have one. And, uh, and then I moved to Winnipeg, then to Regina, then to Ottawa, a little bit overseas, then to Toronto. All of those years as a reporter, and then started anchoring in uh, in '88. So, 20 years reporting, 30 years anchoring. You know the role of anchor, and especially, I mean, it's it's evolved. But you know, you started at a time when you know anchors were were everything. The news anchor, the national news anchor, you know, was was who Canadians turned to, right? I mean, it was such an important voice in in keeping Canadians informed. How did you view it in terms of kind of that that responsibility or or the relationship you have with people? Uh, you know, it, it weighed heavy on me. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. You know, when I was in Churchill, I used to dream about, wow, maybe one day I could actually, you know, be a television anchor and anchor the national. I never told anybody that. They would have laughed me out of the room. But um, I always saw it as a big deal. I'd grown up in a house that you know, revered the CBC when we came to Canada, the BBC before that. Uh, and so here I was in there, and suddenly I was doing that job. I remember the very first night I was, I was anchoring. Uh, the national. I, my I, my heart was pounding. I felt anybody who was watching would have seen it, you know, through the uh, through my suit. Um, but it, it, times have changed. The, the you know the landscape has changed dramatically. There's so many more channels and various services and cable news and streaming services and the internet and social media. All of that has had a huge impact uh, to the point where. You know, the news anchors of the big shows and the big local shows are still very important um, to their viewers. But it's challenging times in journalism, and uh, we've all got to face that. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. I mean, you know, it's, it's we just marked 20 years uh, since September 11th, and, uh -huh. you know, we think about that as, you know, one of the, the world-altering events uh, of, sure. of our lifetime, right? And so you sort of had a, a really unique seat to to so many of these huge events, and, and you know, you trace the, the trajectory of your career, you look even from, from 88 on, yep. and all of the, the, you know, the news events in Canada, around the world that uh, we were covering and that, that you were front and center covering, when you reflect on it all and, and you look back, what, what are the moments in that sense that, that really stuck with you? Well, obviously, 9-11 was one um, because it was, it was so intense. Uh, you know, I never left the studio. I was in the studio for, I think, 44 hours straight. Um, but, you know, other big moments, I was actually there for them. I was in Berlin the weekend the wall came down in November of uh, 89. And that was a world-altering event. We, you know, in the moment, we weren't sure exactly how far it could lead. 
um, at least to a united Germany, yes, but to the end of communism in Eastern Europe, as we saw it at that point, I don't think anybody was willing to predict that on that weekend, but that's what it ended up being. So it was a world-altering moment of that, there's no question. Lots of huge moments in terms of, um, you know, Canadian history and Canadian politics. You know, I covered both referendums in 80 and 95, and lots of, you know, federal election nights and lots of leadership conventions. Those were all, you know, pretty special moments. I covered the war in Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, I was in the Middle East lots of times. Uh, I really believed uh, in my role as an anchor was also not to just sit in the studio, but was to get out to the story to have a better idea of uh, the impact of these things. And to, uh, you know, and, and to back up the correspondents who we rely on so heavily um, in different parts of the world to do the job. And, you know, you've got to see it to understand what they go through. Yeah. So, as I say, not only have you kind of watched the, the world change from an up-close seat, you've, you've watched the industry change. You've watched journalism uh-huh. itself change. I, I mean, is, is journalism at its core still what, it, what it's been all along? And is it just the, you know, the, the world around it that, that's changed? Or what, what's your sense of where journalism is at here? Well, I think both. both uh, yeah, first of all, I'm not one of those guys who says, Oh, you know, it's not as good as it used to be, Uh, because I know that the golden era of journalism wasn't that golden. There were a lot of things in it, uh, because I was there and I saw it uh, up close that, you know, weren't as good as we tend to think they were. So uh, lots has improved in the world of journalism, but there are challenges, because... um, you know, the main thing that journalism thrives on is trust of, with the, those who you serve, whether it's your listeners or my viewers or readers of uh, everything from print to uh, to the Internet. Um, if they don't have the trust of uh, of their audience, they've got a real problem. And we're we're sitting in a in a in a zone right now overall for uh, journalism and the media in general, where there's a degree of lost trust. And we got to earn it back. We have to earn the confidence back of, of those who we serve because without trust that we're telling the truth, we get nothing. We, our credibility can be shot in an instant. Right. And without that, uh, we, we don't exist as the pillar of democracy that we like to believe we are. You've got to have that uh, connection with the audience. And, you know, right now I think there's a, there's a question uh, on the uh, part of a lot of people, reasonable people, uh, who want who want to believe us, but who want us to convince them that what we're telling them is the truth. We live in a very funny era, you know. We've mm-hmm. witnessed it. We like to think it was all just happening south of the border and around Donald Trump, but it's much more than that. It's been happening in many parts of the world, and we can't say that it hasn't impacted us as well. Well, it feels like, you know, there, there's a splintering in society or a polarization in society. And, and yep. so maybe maybe part of what's happening is just changing expectations and demands and, and what people want and what they're able to, to go out and find. But I think at the same time, too, as you mentioned, there, there's still an obligation on, on journalists and journalism to be honest brokers and, and to build that trust. Is, is it possible, do you think, to, to do so? I think it is. Uh, you know, journalists have a history, not just in this country, but around the world, um, uh, of being there to tell great stories, to challenge assumptions, um, to bring the information of the people so the people can decide for themselves 
what they want to believe and who they want to, you know, side with in terms of some of the great debates around uh, many of the big issues that affect all of us. Um, so journalists have an important role to play there. They've played it before, and they play it in many areas now. It's just that there's so much stuff out there, right? And the question for a lot of people is, what do I believe? Because I keep finding out that something actually isn't what we were told it was. And then they blanket everybody with that same, you know, kind of brush. So you, either, at, at that point, you realize what the stakes are, that, um, that information, which we used to just get from a few different sources, now there are lots of sources out there. And for most younger people, and I don't mean just like teenagers, I'm talking about, you know, those in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who get most of their news uh, from social media. And <laughs> that's a gamble. There's a lot of crap on social media. <laughs> yeah. You've got to, you still got to do your due diligence as a member of the audience to ensure that what you're reading is true. Where is it coming from? You know, is it a legitimate news source that is the uh, origin of the story you're reading on social media? Or is it somebody you don't even know or some organization you've never heard of before? Uh, and at that point, you've got to, you know, you, you've got to challenge what you're seeing and what you're reading. Well, speaking of reading, it's a fascinating look at a remarkable career. The book is called Off the Record, available this week. We mentioned the event happening 7 o'clock tonight, wordfest.com. Peter Mansbridge, congratulations uh, on the book. And uh, as mentioned, a remarkable career. And really appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for the conversation. Listen, Rob, thank you very much. All the best. Uh, there yep, you go. That care. is uh, the one and only Peter Mansbridge. Uh, his book is called Off the Record, available this week. And uh, more uh, from Peter uh, as he talks about the book and his career, wordfest.com. That event's happening at 7 o'clock this evening. All right, welcome back. Rob Reckenridge with you. You know, I picked those return songs because, uh, I, I, you know, there was something about those songs that, that intrigued me. And it is interesting when you sit back and think, what is it about music? Like, we know that we like it, but, but why? You know, what is it about humans and music? There's some pretty big kind of philosophical and scientific questions there. Uh, the kind of conversation, I think, is uh, relevant to all ages. But some of this is uh, part of a new book that our next guest has written, uh, Alan Cross. And we've spoken with Alan many times, uh, music writer, broadcaster, historian, host of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, a journal of musicalthings.com. And he's out with a new book, as mentioned, aimed at uh, younger Canadians, The Science of Song, How and Why We Make Music. So I suppose there's some history and some science here, but just the whole process. And maybe kids don't think of it. In terms of how music is made, how it's distributed, how it gets from the brain of a musician into your ears. And obviously that's changed a lot in uh, recent generations. Uh, joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, the aforementioned Alan Cross. Alan, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I get to plug a book. You do. And it's interesting because from what I understand, that this kind of stemmed from a, a science exhibit you'd been involved in in a few years ago. Talk about the process of you know writing this book and why you wrote a kid's book here. Yeah, I did a thing called the uh, Science of Rock and Roll, which went to science museums uh, across North America. I was in Toronto for six months, went to Kansas City. It was in Detroit and Chicago, uh, a couple of other places. And whenever I went to one of these uh, museum exhibits, 
I noticed that there were a lot of kids who really seemed to be uh, having a good time, touching stuff, playing with the stuff, uh, gazing at the stuff, uh, interacting with the stuff. And thought, okay, well, may- maybe this is something down the road somewhere. So when the museum exhibit ended, I had all this research that I didn't really know what to do with. It was it took me a long time to put it together, and I didn't want it to go to waste. So I, I thought, well, why don't we do something a little bit different? Remember the kids at the museum exhibit? Why don't we do a children's book? Uh, because at that point, I was getting really concerned with how streaming is affecting the way we consume and regard music. It's 75 million songs from your phone. You don't give it much thought. You have no, you know, there's no liner notes. There's no album artwork. There's nothing like that. It's basically organized noise going in one ear and out the other. Well, this is, this isn't right because a lot of effort, a lot of science, a lot of technology, a lot of engineering, a lot of mathematics, a lot of talent and creativity goes into making music. Somebody's got to explain it to the kids uh, while they're young, so maybe they will ascribe a, a more of a value to mm-hmm. what music actually is. Well, and you know, maybe we could have used this as kids too. And it was—it's funny because I remember a while ago, one of my kids was asking about records. Like, you know, we all used to listen to records; they're kind of popular now, but like. How do they work? How do they get the music on the record? How does that needle get the music off of the record and into the speaker? And I really, and I work at broadcasting. I say, I don't know. It just happens. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and it's not just records. It's it's tape. It's CDs. It's streaming. You know, there is a lot of science and a lot of technology that goes into uh, just being able to listen to a piece of music. And I've, I've always found that fascinating ever since I was a kid when I got my first transistor radio at the age of six. So uh, this is sort of me jotting down for kids uh, all the things that I found fascinating. And what, what's rather interesting, what I found is, for example, I gave the, the book to my neighbor who's got a couple of uh, young boys who are prime, you know, prime for this book. And he said, uh, he was looking at me, he goes, yeah, I'll give this to the kids after I finish with it. Yeah. Well, that's just it. I mean, you know, th- this is, is kind of universal. I think, you know, understanding the process of making music, how it gets from, you know, the, the mind of a, an artist onto our phone or whatever the format is. And just even as I alluded to the, in the introduction, Alan, just, you know, our, our relationship with music, how it came to be that, that humans even created music in the first place, why it, it resonates so deeply with us. I mean, it's, it's so emotional at so many levels, makes us feel good. It evokes memories. It's such a huge part of our life. Well, what's interesting is that the brain uh, has this built-in, hardwired area designed for music. And there's no real evolutionary or biological reason that our brains are wired that way. We really don't know why that we, 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 we crave, we need music, and, and biologically we're, we're already ready to go. Maybe it was... You know, cavemen trying to imitate bird songs. Maybe it was something that evolved because music and chanting could be used in various rituals. Don't know. But it is uh, something that neuroscientists study very carefully because uh, music is stored in a different part of the brain than the rest of our memories. It's accessed differently, and it travels through the brain differently than standard memories. If you've ever run into a person with Alzheimer's or dementia, um, they may be completely incoherent and out of it, 
but if you start playing some music to go along with it, uh, to, to, you know, just to, you know, keep them happy, you would be surprised at how much, uh, how many memories come flowing out. And it's all tied to the music. I'll give you an example. Tony Bennett, still performing. He's 95 years old and he has Alzheimer's and dementia. Right. He has been working with Lady Gaga for quite some time. And for the last number of weeks, uh, he called her sweetheart or darling. Couldn't remember her name. But then they did a show together, and the music was playing as Lady Gaga walked on stage to meet Tony Bennett. And he, Lady Gaga, you're here. Good to see you. I haven't talked to you in a long time. It was the music that brought out all the, the memories and the recognition of who she was. That's just an example of the power it has. Yeah. And and it's remarkable, too, because the technology changes, the technology evolves. You know, 30 years ago, I don't think any of us could have predicted what, you know, listening to music would look like in, in the year 2021, which is to say we probably don't know what it's going to look like, you know, 30 years from now. But we know the constant, like th there is going to be music, however it is we access it. We know for sure that it's going to be a huge part of our lives and our kids' lives, our grandkids' lives and, and so on, right? Yeah, even more so, because, again... We've got 75 million songs and growing every day available to us from every aspect of human history and every aspect of human culture. What is that going to mean? I mean, back in the day, we, you know, even at the biggest record store had 100,000 titles that you could buy. Uh, and most of that was, was newer stuff. Now you have the whole of human history. How is that going to affect us? As, as humans going forward, when we can access anything. It's fascinating. It really is. Well, the book is called The Science of Song, How and Why We Make Music. Uh, maybe technically a kid's book, but I think it's you know, of interest to, to all ages. Kids can impress uh, the publisher on this one. Uh, Alan, congrats on the book, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate the chat. Hey, anytime. You know where I am. All right. All the best. Uh, that is Alan Cross, music uh, writer, broadcaster, historian. Uh, Journal of MusicalThings.com is his website, the podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music. Uh, and now can add this to his resume, author of The Science of Song, How and Why We Make Music, published by Kids Can Press, which is a division of uh, Chorus Entertainment. So, yeah, it is about the science of how music is made. It's kind of the history of that science as well. So there's engineering math that comes into play and there is kind of that you know just study of, of humanity and what it is about uh, humans that led to the creation of music and why that's been a, a central part of our lives for as long as there have been humans it, it, it is kind of a fascinating question at that level too all right welcome back an update on the story we talked about earlier this year in response to a spate of liquor store thefts, the uh, liquor retail company Alcana partnered with PatronScan to develop uh, a scanning system that in order to enter a liquor store, you would have to scan your ID first. There was initially a pilot project in Edmonton. Uh, then earlier this year, I think back in April, that was expanded to Calgary. Four liquor stores in Calgary uh, adopted this technology. Now, the experience suggests that it has had an impact on thefts. But what about the other side of it? You know, the, the privacy concerns here, the idea of having to scan your ID to enter the store. What was being done with that information? And did any of this go too far? Well, it was something that Alberta's uh, Information and Privacy Commissioner was uh, concerned about and launched an investigation. 
That investigation has now been completed, and Alberta's Privacy Commissioner has found uh, that there are some issues here in terms of how and how long this information is being stored. So those findings uh, were published today. So joining us to talk about uh, this investigation and what it found, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jill Clayton, Alberta's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Ms. Clayton, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. I think the origins of this this pilot project go all the way back to, you know, almost pre-pandemic times, I think early 2020. At what point did you get involved in all of this? Uh, well, we opened the investigation, I think it was shortly after um, there was a, a public announcement, some sort of media availability, I think, when the pilot project was announced. And um, not surprisingly, I think that uh, we started to get all sorts of questions from um, from media. And then we were concerned about some, some statements um, that had been made publicly and wanted to have a, a closer look at exactly what was going on um, with respect to the, the driver's license scanning at these liquor stores. Right. Now, explain how, how it works. I mean, is your office able to, to commence an investigation, you know, essentially on its own? Did the, did the company approach you for some advice or do you rely on complaints from the public? What, what has to happen to launch an investigation? Uh, well, often um, we'll launch an investigation, of course, when we receive complaints from individuals, although in the private right. sector, um, you don't even have to be personally affected in order to, to um, make a complaint to our office. And um, if there's some uh, reason to go forward with an investigation, we will do that. But um, as you may know, sometimes if there's enough media attention, enough concern, obviously people are concerned about um, privacy issues, then um, I have the ability to investigate on my own motion. And, and that's what I had done in this case. Okay, so the, the, you took your time with this investigation. This is a pretty thorough investigation. So 16 findings here, five recommendations. So what you learned about how this system works? So, you know, to the customer, it's you, you scan your ID to, to enter the store. And what happens <laughs> after that, I guess, maybe people aren't fully aware. So what, what does happen yeah. after that? Well, um, actually, I'm, I'm going to go back and just explain that this is this issue, a similar issue, has a long, long history in Alberta. And that's another one of the reasons why I wanted to, to take a look at this. So um, way back in sort of the, the mid-2000s, um, when we first had private sector privacy legislation, there was a whole big issue around nightclubs and bars that were um, photocopying or scanning the front of driver's licenses and entering that information into a database. And we had a whole number of complaints to the office. And ultimately, my predecessor, Commissioner Frank Work, issued an order. And he found that it wasn't reasonable for um, bars to uh, to collect that information and that they didn't have a reasonable purpose. And, they were, and that was the end of the story. The courts actually reviewed that decision and, and upheld him and said that it wasn't reasonable. But what happened after that is that the at the time, the Gaming and Liquor Act um, was amended. So the legislature looked at at the collection of this information um, when individuals enter licensed premises and decided that there were certain purposes that were reasonable. And um, as long as the collection of information was limited for these reasonable purposes, then that was authorized by statute. So I think one of the key findings from our investigation now was to take a look at that statute and to say, yes, um, we think that there, the legislature has decided there, there are some reasonable purposes to collect some limited personal information from individuals before allowing them to enter licensed premises, which includes a liquor store. So I think that's a key finding from this investigation. 
Um, yeah, and that's important find- to point out here. But and, and just yeah. Say, yeah, before you continue, so that that sure. point here that that there's a legitimate purpose to to this collection that that applies to to liquor stores in, in this case. Yeah, and and that's yeah. one of the reasons. Um, well, I, I do think that's a key finding. I want to emphasize that. But when the legislature amended the Gaming and Liquor Act, which is now the Gaming, Liquor, and Cannabis Act. Um, what it said was that it was reasonable to collect name, age, and photograph, and just those three specific elements for making decisions about allowing someone to enter and for disclosure to police to help to identify people who might have been involved in a crime, that kind of thing. So what we found during this investigation is that the, the not only were, was um, uh, the, the technology collecting name and age, not photograph, but name and age, um, but also gender and partial postal code. So that goes further than what the legislature had decided was was reasonable. And then by digging further, we found that the technology has to uncode, if you will, has to review all of the information that is stored in the magnetic strip on a driver's license. So that includes, I think, some 23 bits of information that are effectively like like full postal code, which then gets converted to partial Mm -hmm. postal code. So essentially what we found is that there is a reasonable purpose but this technology is collecting too much information to meet that purpose. What's being done with that information? I guess more to the point is how, I mean, is it, is it being stored for a certain amount of time? How's the company handling what it collects? Yeah, well, the technology actually, as I say, un- unencrypts or, or reviews um, all of the information that is in that, in that code and then parses it, effectively selects the bits that it wants um, and then gets rid of, the rest of it and the bits that it wants. Uh, so in this case, what was happening was name, age, um, as I said, gender and partial postal code. That information was being retained for a period of time. Um, and the, the idea behind that, that retention of information, um, certainly if you're looking at the, the statutory authority under the Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis Act, is that if, if an individual in the, in the liquor store was involved in some sort of theft or robbery or some uh, violent act, that that information could be disclosed to police. That's a clear authority under the Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis Act, disclosed to police in order to help identify that person and to investigate the crime. Um, I'll say that the Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis Act also allows um, a licensed premise, like a liquor store or bar, to give that information to another licensed premise, or like a liquor store or bar, so they can decide whether or not to um, allow somebody into their store. But it turns out that Alcana was not using that functionality at the stores um, where they were running this pilot project. There's another interesting aspect that, that you found here, because there, there was a privacy notice that was posted in these stores that I guess was meant to address whatever questions people might have. Mm-hmm. So given your findings, looking back now at the information that Alcana was, was providing to patrons, were, were they getting accurate information? No, that was another finding. I think that, um, uh, you know, the, the requirement under privacy law is to be clear about what information is being collected from individuals and about the purpose for that collection. Um, and so we, we made some recommendations around changing that, that notice to, um, it needs to more accurately reflect uh, what the practices are. And it also needs to provide information so that an individual who might have questions about the collection has uh, the name of somebody or a person they can go to to um, uh, have their questions answered. So we made so some that recommendations would be, yeah. on that. Right. Well, yeah, there's yeah. there's five recommendations here, uh, and and yeah, part of it involves ensuring that the the 
privacy guidelines or what's posted in terms of uh, this this notice is is accurate. So that's important. What what else needs to change here if if this program is to continue? Well, I think the one thing that um, you know I, I said this I think in the news release, but also it's definitely in the report that um, you know you opened with um, some comments that it looks like this program has been effective. And, and, you know, certainly I've seen quite a bit of evidence from the parties that we talked to during the investigation and from others um, indicating that there, there is a problem. Obviously, there, there, there does seem to be a problem with um, violence and robbery and, and um, issues with thefts from liquor stores. So I think, um, and again, looking at the way the Act was, the Gaming and Liquor Act was amended back in 2009, it's clear that the legislature saw that there was a problem and that there's a there's a need to collect some information. So um, given that, I'm concerned that the way the legislation is drafted right now, that there might be some issues with going forward with ID scanning technology. I'm not sure um, if the legislation right now completely addresses some of the, the challenges and, and, you know, technology changes a lot. And, and so we've seen some technological changes in the last 10 years. If it is legitimate to collect some information, we want to make sure that liquor stores are able to, if that's what they want to do. It's not it's not a mandatory practice, but um, if there's a program that seems to be effective in collecting some limited personal information, not everything on a driver's license is going to solve the problem, then, um, you know, we want to make sure that, that those legislative purposes are achievable. So there's some some recommendations here for the companies to 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 follow, uh, and and my understanding is they've committed to following that. But is is that to also suggest then that perhaps the legislature needs to revisit or maybe update the legislation? Yeah, um, well, I, I think that's a possibility. So one of the things I'm I committed to doing was to write to government and to some of the other stakeholders and to to talk about solutions. Um, as I said, the way the way that the the legislation is written right now might not allow um, the use of certain technologies to achieve these purposes, um, and I want to make sure that that that's not that that's not just an accident. Um, that if there is a solution that certain technologies are are um, can be implemented, then that the legislation will will allow for that. Will be flexible enough to allow for that. One thing I really don't want to lose, and that I think is really important, is that. Um, recognizing that there is a legitimate purpose here, and that this is about potentially public safety and and, um, and investigating criminal activities, I do want to ensure that um, that achieving those purposes is balanced with protecting privacy. So I don't want to see us going back to uh, where we were back in sort of 2007, 2008, where there's a scanning of driver's licenses and this you know widespread collection of information, uh, driver's license numbers, addresses, dates of birth. Um, that's what we saw back then. Um, I think it, it's a fundamental principle of privacy to limit the collection of information to what is um, reasonable to meet the purposes. So I want to make sure that if if the idea is to meet these purposes, we have reasonable purposes, we want to use technology um, to do that, that it, those purposes are achievable while still protecting privacy. Yeah, an important point. Uh, well, the findings, the report, it's published uh, on the website oipc.ab.ca. Uh, Joe Clayton, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. All the best. Uh, that is Jill Clayton, Alberta's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Again, the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner online, OIPC. .ab.ca, so you can read this report for yourself. So identifying some problems in terms of how much this system is collecting and how this information is being stored.
So she's made some recommendations to ensure that it adheres with Alberta's privacy legislation. Uh, the companies involved say they are committed to making those changes. So some important clarification, I guess, going forward is as maybe stores look to adopt this kind of approach on a more widespread basis. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.